0: Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Cabragau clan of the Darug Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this land we are meeting on today. We also pay our respects to the elders, both past and present, and future of the Darug Nation.
1: Hey, friends, welcome to our podcast, A Seat at Our Table.
0: Candid conversations about our Asian Australian experience in the creative industry. I'm Wendy. I'm Tracy. We, we saved, saved you a seat. seat. Come, Come join, join us. us. Hey friends, welcome to episode four. Today we have a very, very special guest.
1: Our dearest friend, Jason. Welcome to the pod.
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. We're really glad you're here with us today. How was your day today, Jace?
2: Oh, uh, was pretty, pretty good. Had an early start, Played volleyball in the morning. Yeah,
0: we're athletes, so that's what we do on Sundays now. Wendy couldn't make it today.
1: Yeah, because I was too busy socialising, you know.
0: She was lying on the grass or whatever she was doing today. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just soaking in the sunshine, you know, which is also very, very important. Yeah. So that's beside the point. You might be wondering why do we have Jason here on our episode today? Today we're talking about
0: imposter syndrome. Highly, highly requested by all our fans, local and international. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess we wanted to bring in another perspective to talk about imposter syndrome because I think Wendy and I, we talk about it a lot in the context of, I guess, being female, being Asian. but it- we thought it'd be nice to bring in another person who's not female (laughs) and he's Asian, but he's not a female. So it's kind of a nice to have a third person in the room as well to kind of get another perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in this episode, we are going to share our experiences with imposter syndrome. We will reflect on the role of our upbringing and our cultural background and how this has impacted us and also some tactics to work through imposter syndrome.
0: Alright, so let's start with an introduction from Jason, like what is your age, your cultural background, what you do for
2: work? Uh, yep, yeah. so I'm 25, I'm an Australian-born Chinese and I've been raised in Western Sydney all my life, went to public schools in the area as well, um, and then went on to study actuarial studies at uni and have now been working at a consulting company for almost four years.
0: Nice. So a little bit longer in the industry than Wendy and I. Um mm-hmm. Jason, what does a day in your life look like? And maybe not a lot of people know what actuarial study is. Like even <laughs> I didn't know before meeting you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Same. Um it's a pretty yeah, so because I work in a consulting company, it's a pretty client-facing role. Uh the work is pretty technical, so we do a lot of modeling. Uh we write reports for clients, we liaise with them, and we take them through a report and present to them results, um, essentially based off our work.
1: Is it kind of like yeah financial forecasting for companies.
2: Yeah, it's yeah, it's a lot of financial forecasting. It's also a lot of strategy advice as well. Mm. Um, how they can grow or address some faults in the business. Um, and most of the time we deal with insurance companies.
0: What does your team look like? Is it a big or small team?
2: Um we work in different projects. So generally the average team would be around like five people, but then in big projects we can go up to like ten to twenty.
1: Wow. I can relate on the consulting part, but not so much on the financial modeling part.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's good to have Jason here because Wendy and I in the creative industry but it's nice to get somebody else from another industry for another perspective as well so before we jump into the topic
1: let's talk about how we know Jason what's our friendship story with him I remember Jason coming to our school as the new kid and obviously in high school when a new kid comes to the school it's a very big deal talk of the town yeah um it was year 10 we were like 16 and I heard Jason was extremely smart and that was kind of my first impression of him. But over time, I got to know Jason. I don't know if we had classes together, but we had something together and somehow we got to know each other and we spent a lot of time studying together at the library, I feel like in year 11 and 12.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you remember meeting
1: Wendy?
2: Um. To be honest, not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did I not leave an impression? <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think we had English together, but it was just... the. Uh...
1: Okay, cool, I get it. I'm going yeah, being
2: annoyances. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. How about you, Tracy? I
0: do not remember meeting Jason. Like I remember what Wendy said, that Jason coming to the school was the talk of the town. Because, you know, new kid in the grade, very exciting stuff. But I didn't really become, like, good friends with Jason until probably after high school. Like We were always in the same groups, uh, mm. same parties, same extended groups, but... We never really, like, properly talked until probably after high school where we got um, closer and we're like, now part of the same friendship group.
1: And now we're here, like, eight years later filming this podcast episode. Yeah. Do you remember anything from meeting us? Um, We didn't leave an impression, trace, <laughs> Yeah, this is awkward. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I remember you guys were also the popular kids. Like, you guys were both pretty what? chummy with the teachers as well.
1: Us, the popular kids? Yeah, like the e-blockers. Oh, yeah, chummy with the teachers,
2: yes. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: definitely. Yeah. We were suck-ups. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think you guys did a lot of extracurricular stuff, so I think you guys were known for that. Yeah. Mm.
0: How would you describe our friendship now?
2: Yeah, I think our friendship is at the stage where we're comfortable with each other. We have fun. We play sports together. We also talk a lot of smack to each other <laughs> and, and be very annoying to each other, but then can also get serious when it comes down to it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I feel like our friendship is like we can yeah talk shit but also talk serious
1: yeah Mm. which is why we're here right yeah Yeah. exactly maybe we should jump into um the topic itself Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome so tracy tell us what is Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome yeah so the textbook definition of imposter syndrome it's it's just feelings
0: of self-doubt and personal incompetence that persists despite your education experience and accomplishments it's doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud and it actually mostly affects high achieving people and they find it difficult to accept their accomplishments So while it's not a recognized
1: disorder in the DSM, it's not uncommon. So for our listeners, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So because it's not uncommon, um, it's actually very interesting that 70% of people will experience at least one episode of this in their lives. Um, And it can overlap with other conditions such as social anxiety, which I think we can all relate to. (laughs) S.A. S.A. (laughs) But how this kind of unfolds in, I guess, real life situations is sometimes you might not believe that your successes are your own and you might write them off to like timing and good luck. Um, You don't believe that you've earned them based on your own hard work. And there's this fear that others will eventually realize the same thing. I don't think a lot of people know this, but there's actually five different types. Yeah, I didn't know this until we were researching this. I was like, oh, cool. There's five types.
0: And to give you an introduction to them, there's the perfectionist. So you focus primarily on how you do things, often to the point where you demand perfection of yourself in every aspect of your life. You might even avoid trying new things if you believe you can't do them perfectly the first time. The second one is the natural genius. You spent your life picking up new skills with little effort and believe you should understand new material and processes right away. If something doesn't come easily to you or you fail to succeed on your first try, you might feel ashamed or embarrassed. The third one is the rugged individualist or soloist. You believe you should be able to handle everything solo. If you can't achieve success independently, you consider yourself unworthy.
1: The fourth one is the expert. So before you can consider your work a success, you want to learn everything there is to know on the topic and you might end up spending too much time pursuing your quest for more information that you end up having to devote more time to your main task. And the last one is the superhero. So you link your competence to your ability to succeed in every role that you hold as a student, friend, employee, or parent. Failing to successfully navigate the demands of these roles simply proves, in your opinion, your inadequacy.
0: Hmm. So when I was reading this, I felt like I could relate to so many different aspects of them. But let's talk about what we relate to mainly, like what's the one we identify with?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. So I think the type that relates to me the most is the natural genius. I think compared to what I do at work, um, things in high school and uni uh, were a lot easier to learn. Um, and so and also at work, um, everyone is just so smart as well and they pick things up so much quicker than I do. Um, and so you know, I get confused that whether or not they just have more experience or they're just naturally truly smarter. And so a lot of the time I feel like the dumbest person in the room and I question whether or not I'm really cut up for the job I'm doing. And then I always question whether or not um, I'll ever get to the position that my seniors are in.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that because the natural genius is actually probably my primary one as well. I mean, I don't think I spent life picking up new skills easily, but I do feel that my competence is linked to how quickly I can pick up something. So if something's difficult for me and I can't pick it up, then I feel like a fraud or I feel like, oh, I'm a failure. So I think it's it, links, it gets linked with the fear of failure as well.
1: For mine, I am the rugged individualist. So I pride myself on being able to do things on my own first to prove my self-worth, not mainly to others, but just to myself that I can do something. And I'm actually quite stubborn about this. And I will try to perfect something before asking for help. And it's not always the greatest thing. <laughs> oh,
0: I can also relate to that. I think just being the eldest child as well, I never, like, I refuse to ask for help. I'm like, I can do this by myself. Even when, like, people hold my bag, I'm like, no, I can <laughs> hold my bag myself. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other ones that you guys want to call out that you can relate to?
1: Um, I think I identify with the perfectionist as well. So I tend to try and do things not just to what is expected, but above that as well. I think subconsciously it's like to surprise those that I am, I don't want to say serving, but the person that I am kind of doing the task for, I want to be able to surprise them, to showcase to them that I have more abilities than what I present. And when I'm unable to perform something to the standard that I'm expecting, I end up focusing on the negatives. So this could be in a presentation, if I stumble on my words, I will replay that moment in my head over and over again, after it's ended thinking like, has anybody noticed that I stumbled on my words? Will they think I'm incompetent? Mm. And I just spiral out. And I think it kind of frustrates me because I want to do my best in any job or task I'm given. And I want to be able to give it my all. But so when it doesn't pan out, I get really disappointed. And I think, I think about it for days on end.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can also kind of relate to what you say as well. Like i like I think I set pretty high standards for myself and so sometimes I'll get really bogged down by like the smallest things like after I finish a pretty complex project and I forget to, uh, you know, ungroup some rows in Excel or <laughs> extend some formula down. Um, I kind of forget all the hard work that we put up into that stage and then just kind of mull over the small mistakes that I've made and um, and then get kind of insecure that my, my manager thinks I'm incompetent because I wasn't able to do this small thing that anyone should have picked up, mm. you know. Yeah, and then I kind of end up spending way longer on tasks that shouldn't take as long just to make sure that uh, those things don't happen again.
1: Do you have any like examples of like from your working experiences where this has surfaced up?
2: Um, I think there was a small indirect comment that my manager made to me, you know, when I got promoted, he was like, oh, now that you're a consultant, uh, we can expect perfection from you, right? (laughs) And like, I know he said it as just a passing comment and probably I didn't mean it so seriously, but that kind of just reinforced all the insecurities that I had already. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you have imposter syndrome and people don't know you're like you're <laughs> you're experiencing and they make mm. those comments. Just like oh, mm. yeah. it just really heightens it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of pressure to put something on somebody.
2: Mm.
0: So we've kind of talked about briefly on the five types and how we relate to it, but like, how often do you guys feel imposter syndrome?
1: Oh, that's a hard question. I don't think you can quantify mm. like imposter syndrome. I think it's just like in the moment you become so focused in on the very very small details when something goes like slightly wrong and i think that snowballs incrementally over a period of time and then you just question your entire existence and your career
0: (laughs) (laughs) so is it like certain situations then maybe not how often but what situations provokes
1: it i think it's like situations where you know that there's something on the line so for me a lot of the times it's probably like client presentations. It's really high-pressure environment. You know you need to deliver. And so you put the expectation on yourself to deliver as best as you can. And when you don't reach that expectation, you kind of just end up in disappointment. And it's actually most of the time it's not as bad as you think it is. Mm. Because after a lot of, um, I guess, interactions that I have with clients, I tend to get, we tend to debrief and get feedback. And a lot of the time, all the things that I thought I did wrong actually my team didn't even notice um i don't know if you guys can relate to that as well
2: yeah i think there are def- uh, definite common situations where it comes up so for example uh in uh, in meetings and especially in meetings where i know that i've prepared and like i know the answers to things but then i just have this thought in my head that or well if it was important enough someone else would have said it or like um you know um uh, maybe what i'm thinking is probably not right you know or uh, they might think that I'm stupid if I, you know, uh, uh, suggest something that's not correct. And so, yeah, uh, generally in meetings where um, it's a bit more harder to speak up.
0: Yeah, I'm like nodding because I'm <laughs> agreeing with everything Jason is saying. Like I also find it, especially in meetings where you feel out of place or you feel like maybe you're the most junior person in the room or maybe you're the only minority in the room. I in those situations I feel very like anxious. Mm. I feel like oh. Maybe people are expecting me to speak up, but I also feel like what Jason said, like, can I add any value here? Like, mm. are my thoughts going to be heard? Like, or is what I'm thinking even valid? Like, I have those questions in my head, but I know, logically, I know I should just be brave enough to speak up. Mm. But there's just something ingrained in me to not do it. Mm. Yeah.
2: And then if it feels even worse when, like, someone else says what exactly what you're thinking. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I should have said that. Well, and yeah. that's what I was thinking all along.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, oh, you know, I was right. Or, I, you know, I did yeah. have something valid to say. I just couldn't speak up for some reason. Mm.
1: I'm curious to know, like, what do you guys think if we dig a level deeper? What do you think is the reason why we fear speaking up?
0: Yeah, I, I actually think, like, for me anyway, I feel like mm, probably has something to do with our upbringing. I think in Asian cultures, we're not taught to speak up, we're taught to listen to our elders, respect your elders, only listen, don't talk back.
1: Yeah, I resonate with that so much, especially growing up with a family of four girls and being the third. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I was always taught like my older sister is the one who's right. And even though that was very, very frustrating, I think it was really drilled into me and subconsciously that's translated into the workplace where rank and level is such a kind of big part of framing my expectations of how I should behave in certain scenarios. Um, but interestingly enough, in my new company that I've been at for about five months, we challenge everybody to adopt a challenger mindset, which is about bringing forth your um, kind of your opinions and your If you have something to say that probably challenges what someone else is saying, the environment should be safe enough that you can do that. And I think that took me a long time to try and adopt because I was just so used to a very um, classic corporate hierarchy where whatever the people at the top say kind of goes. And so um, going into a more flat hierarchy, it became kind of uncomfortable for me to try and adopt a challenger mindset because I really questioned whether or not I was, um, I had any value to add. And I think to a certain degree through my kind of ongoing experiences with trying to adopt this mindset, I've slowly started to build up that habit, but you kind of do it within reason as well. It's still uncomfortable to this day. Yeah, I think it's <laughs>
0: uncomfortable, but it's great to have a culture that like promotes it and accepts it, right, and actually have role models that people who are encouraging you to do
2: those things. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the point of hierarchy as well, because to answer your first question, yeah, like the things that Tracy said with upbringing and respecting the elders, listening and kind of uh, refraining from speaking unless spoken to, um, also feeling the need to add value with everything you say as well. Otherwise, you just feel like you're sidetracking or wasting time from the conversation. And then you think twice about speaking up because you feel like you might be judging bad ideas. But then my firm also has a pretty flat hierarchy and they emphasize that because they want everyone to feel like you know, um, it's not just run by the seniors and they want equal contribution from it, from everyone. Yeah. And, and I think recently I've been able to come to terms with that a bit more and be more comfortable in speaking up. And it's kind of made me feel a bit more uh, relieved in that, you know, um, sometimes like my principals and my senior managers are like, oh, you know, like, oh, that's a great idea. Or oh, that's a great suggestion. We should adopt that. You know, especially when I think like these, like the like the smartest people that I know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that's true. That's a good point." I'm like, "Okay," you know, like it's not like uh, everything I say it is not just nonsense.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's like getting practice speaking up. But like Jason said, like mm. the more you do it, you feel like, "Oh, you know, I do add value."
2: here. Mm, yeah, and the validation helps. Yes,
0: the <laughs> validation helps. I think.
1: Yeah, I think it really comes down to like your own self confidence and having kind of very high levels of self esteem. To be able to adopt that mindset. And I think because of our upbringing or because of what we're taught, those are things that we need to learn in our adult life. It's not kind of ingrained in us growing up. Yeah.
0: So, kind of to dive a little bit deeper into it, you know, we've done our research and research does show that imposter syndrome affects women and people of color more than it affects other people. So, this is probably why we can relate to it because, you know, we are people of color and. I guess, when you and I are women. Um, so I want to know, you know, whether you feel like being a person of colour affects that?
1: Um, I think being a person of colour and being an Asian woman is super tough because I think when you look at the people that are around you, if you're not able to see somebody that looks like you or is from the same background as you, You there's more anxiety added to your experience because you're thinking it feels more impossible. And I think you feel like you need to figure it out yourself. Whereas if you had someone, you kind of look up to them as a role model and as a mentor because they're kind of like living and breathing evidence that it's possible to get to, say, like a leadership role or to be the challenger in in the room. Um, Which I've seen firsthand, and I think that gives me the confidence that I can do the same. And you subconsciously like follow people's footsteps, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Do you
0: feel, Jason, do you feel like being Asian has impacted imposter syndrome, your experience with it?
2: Yeah, I think the Asian upbringing definitely, you know, like the things we touched on, like the respecting of elders and stuff like that, and also just setting the bar high. And, you know, I'm striving for the best, and when we don't reach it, we kind of feel like we've failed. But then also, I think like there are some benefits to that as well, like, you know. Because Asians are also quite hardworking, it kind of makes me realize how easy I have it um, compared to what they did. And so in some ways, it kind of teaches me to be more resilient. And especially since my job is pretty high pressure, um, it's helped me cope at times as well. And to not, you know, kind of I look on the bright side of things like things could be much worse compared to what my parents had done and gone through. And also, I think like being Asian and being one of the first people in my family to be in a white collar job, you know, uh, yeah, we're still navigating and figuring things out for the first time. So, and also understanding that sometimes the old school way of doing things, of simply being hardworking and doing as you're told, and not challenging elders, might not necessarily be compatible um, with what is actually expected in the workplace, where you're expected to um, speak up, and those that do kind of get rewarded as well.
0: Yeah, it's almost like we work in a Western culture, right, where speaking up, being extroverted, being a leader, is rewarded, and maybe that, like. The more Asian values that we have, being submissive or bit more passive, is being overlooked. But it doesn't discount it. I don't think we should discount the value yeah. that we bring to the workplace as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think there's this tension between kind of working in a Western environment, but bringing in your cultural values into that, and kind of navigating that tension manifests itself into imposter syndrome in a lot of ways, and. I think that as you kind of gain more experience, you become more confident in yourself to like speak up and challenge what is being said. So, we've talked a lot about um, imposter syndrome in the professional context, but what about in other aspects of our life? So, things like university, part time jobs, even family and personal life. Have you both experienced imposter syndrome in either of those kind of contexts?
2: I think I felt this a little bit through uni, but. It was probably more apparent through a work where stakes are a lot higher and it was harder to hide. So it brought up my insecurities a bit more.
1: Mm. Yeah, kind of feels like there's a a spotlight on you. Whereas in uni, it's like you're part of a bigger crowd Mm. and you're kind of doing things just on your own. And when you receive marks, for instance, it's only for you to see and you're not being like outwardly compared to other people. Whereas I think in a work context, It's very visible if there's a high achiever versus like a non-high achiever. Oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe it's like a
0: team environment because I do feel like sometimes I do get like performance anxiety or imposter syndrome when I play sports. So we play a lot of sports between (laughs) us. (laughs) You know, we do basketball, we do volleyball, we do netball, we also do, do? I don't know, badminton. You know, we've done Oztag. Anyways, we're athletes out here. (laughs) But sometimes I do feel performance anxiety when I'm in a team environment because I feel like oh, if I do something wrong or if I miss the ball, I don't catch the ball, then I just beat myself up. I'm like, oh, I'm letting the team down. It's the idea of letting the team down.
1: That's really interesting because I'd like to think I'm pretty like naturally athletic and so I've been always pretty good at sports. But I do um, kind of relate in the sense that if there's a sport that I play and I can't pick up, my natural instinct is always to just give up. Um, And maybe that's the competitive side of me. (laughs)
0: It's like confronting. I think it's confronting when you think you're like this per- not perfect person. You, you have these skills. You think you're good at something, but then when something happens that shows that you're not as good as you would like to be, yet that's confronting because it feels like oh, I could be better.
1: Yeah, and I think it it probably manifests itself more when you're an adult because you just are probably more conscious about what other people think of you and what they will notice. Whereas as a child, you're more inclined to just do things without even second guessing kind of like how other people will see you and I think for me it stems a lot from the fact that I'm a third child and I always had to maybe work a little bit harder to prove to my parents that um, like I have value and I, I guess I didn't feel as noticed as my sisters were hmm.
0: do you relate to that Jason because you're the middle child
2: yeah yeah I've been the middle child and also the second child you know my brother graduated from high school before me and did pretty well and so I remember when my ATAR results came out and my mum was standing there next to me she saw my result she was like oh is that it <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think uh, ever since then I'd also kind of felt like I also needed to you know kind of do more to also make my parents proud like I think even after finishing all my exams after, after uni two qualifying um, they kind of didn't really seem to notice my achievements uh, as much as I thought they would have and yeah I think that kind of made me a little bit destroyed inside
0: yeah (laughs) do you feel like we kind of get like not that we live for their praise but Mm. when they praise us we feel happy and that's why we have to work so hard to achieve this like
1: perfect perfect standard or whatever it is yeah Yeah. i think it's like really really drilled into us when we're um a lot younger so your like parenting and your like childhood environment actually plays such a big part in how it Um, kind of shows up later on in your life and I think for us academic success especially being Asian is a massive part of it so I think if you are very used to getting like really high marks or being a really high performer in a school setting and then you go into a different environment such as a university setting and suddenly you're not the top of the list anymore or you're not the best then you start to question um, whether or not like this course or this like uni is worth your while and I definitely experienced that in uni where in high school I was kind of involved in pretty much every extracurricular mm-hmm. activity there was out there and I was very used to getting praise from like teachers and my parents and then once I got to uni I had no idea what I was doing I wasn't getting great marks and throughout all the first year I was really questioning whether or not design was for me and In a way, I actually think that it humbled me because I stuck through it, got to second year. And from then on, I think once I started to focus on my own lane, that was when I was able to kind of combat those feelings of imposter syndrome. But when I got to a professional um, context, that was also, again, something new. And you don't really get praised as much as you would say in uni because you can see it reflected in your marks and the way that people give you feedback. But in a professional context, I think. You kind of need to search for those things yourself and give yourself the reassurance that you're doing okay because it's not as evident.
0: Yeah, it's almost trying to let go of expecting ex- external praise or external, mm. I don't know, rewards and really looking within and seeing what makes us happy or what we can do to feel good about ourselves rather than expecting praise from other people.
2: Mm. But also, I feel like it can be hard because um, if our parents have always been kind of telling us how, how hard they've had it and so therefore like a lot of your upbringing was also trying to impress them Mm. and so then when you don't uh receive that praise from the people that are closest to you the people that matter most then you kind of just feel like you know no matter what you do it's not going to be enough
1: (laughs) yeah but i think we're at an age now like you know Mm. we're all 25 26 where we're starting to realize that these are actually pressures that we just put on ourselves but it's like stemming from all the pressures that we received from our parents or our family
0: yeah, it's pretty overwhelming. Like there's a lot to unpack <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: there is. It's
0: just funny because when I I, th- I think back to the beginning of the episode where we talk about how imposter syndrome affects high-achieving people, and this is like an example here of three high really high-achieving people being affected by imposter syndrome.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of like a cycle, right? And I think you constantly go through it without realizing that like you face imposter syndrome relating to a particular um situation and then you get over it and then there's something new and then you get imposter syndrome again. So I think it's something that's going to be ongoing for the rest of our lives given that we are high achieving people. But I reckon there are ways that you can kind of combat them one yeah. by one to build up more confidence so it's not the first thing that you gravitate towards like that mindset. Yeah.
0: So what like are there any tactics that work for you you to you know to overcome imposter syndrome?
2: Um, Yeah, so I think there are a few things that help, so for example the first one is identifying where imposter syndrome stems from so that we know where to begin with it, so I think earlier in the episode I mentioned that the natural genius type related most to me and I think what's helped is gaining experience and sometimes you actually won't feel like you've gained a lot of experience or knowledge. Um, because you're always in your own frame of reference and it's not until a grad or an analyst asks the same questions that you did when you joined and you're like okay yep yeah, now I can answer these questions <laughs> and also sometimes you know like you feel like you're picking things up yeah. um, along the way that are uh, so you are asking those questions or yeah
0: it's like remembering that everybody started where you were at some point like your mm-hmm. managers your directors they all were new as well they were at your age at
1: one point yeah, mm. it's it's kind of a reality check when you need to mentor someone because then you're like, oh, crap, I actually know my stuff. Mm. Like I'm not as clueless as I think I am. And it's just a reminder that you are progressing more than you think you were. And I think mm. we forget to do that. We forget to take a step back and look at all the progress that we've made as people and just like give ourselves a pat on the back, right? Mm. Um, and I think we just continue to focus on what's in the now and focus on the negative things like the mistakes we've made rather than the wins of the day which i think are also very important
2: mm. and i think that kind of relates just to like the negativity bias where we generally relate or we kind of think more about the bad things that we've done and we kind of overlook all the good things that we do and so you would react more negatively to a something to a mistake rather than more positively to something good that you've done
0: i think asking for feedback also really helps me like when I don't know how I'm doing, asking the people around me for feedback to the how, where I can improve, but also what I've done well, like that helps kind of validate my feelings. Like, you know, you're actually not doing complete shit. <laughs> 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 you're doing the X, Y, Z well, um, but there's also areas of improvement and it just helps, really helps talking to people around you that can support you in this journey as well.
1: Yeah. I actually used to really fear asking for feedback because in uni, when you ask for feedback about like design stuff, I feel like you just work so hard on it. You don't want someone to just unravel everything that you've mm. ever done. But what I've noticed just through working and getting feedback from my peers is all the things that I am hyper aware of and super focused on. My colleagues actually don't even notice that. They actually notice other attributes in me that I didn't even realize were my strengths. But I also, inviting feedback has allowed me to become more. Uh, comfortable with receiving it as well so I used to fear asking for feedback but now that I've kind of opened myself up to asking for direct feedback after um, say like a presentation I'm kind of more mentally prepared to receive that feedback and then more willing to work on it Mm. as well.
2: Yeah. And I think it also comes from the culture of the company as well, whether or not they foster and encourage feedback sessions. So for example, I had a feedback with my manager and he said that, you know, I should step up and do this and that. And I've been doing the things that I've been doing really well. And, um, I think it's time for me to do other things. And, you know, um, I think that's really pushed me to do a bit more in my line of work, um, it's made me a bit less scared to like speak up and, you know, um, feel that my opinions and contributions are valid and valuable. Um, and, can, and at the end of that, it also helps to clarify that it's just a voice in my head that's telling me these things, and other people don't really see it that way, even though we might. Yeah.
0: I think that's a nice kind of um, like what you said about it's also about workplace culture. There's this thing about imposter syndrome where you're fixing the individual versus fixing the organization. Imposter syndrome tends to put the blame on individuals. So like, you know, as we were talking, like, you know, it's because I can't do this, I can't do that, but it doesn't account for the fact that organizations also need a change to support individuals to speak up, be more confident and feel comfortable and supported in their workplace as well. So it's not just putting the blame on an individual, but it's also putting the focus on how organizations can support individuals too.
1: Yeah, I think it's like openly talking about it in a work context is so important. I recently had one of my senior colleagues, um, she put out something on LinkedIn about experiencing imposter syndrome. And I think that was such a nice read because it helped me realize that it's not just junior staff who are experiencing imposter syndrome, it's everybody at all levels. And being able to see people go through that struggle as well, but be vulnerable and talk about it so openly and candidly kind of reassures you that you're not the only one. And collectively, you're kind of all going through the same thing. So it opens up the conversation and kind of sets the expectation that actually maybe you don't need to know everything mm-hmm. and you don't need to be that person who's a perfectionist or to have um, all the knowledge in the world.
0: Yeah. But like the idea that you're not the only one is important too, you know, just being able to see people who are going through the same thing as you, that can really, really help and kind of sets the stand of what is achievable. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think also being able to see people in your organization that are at higher levels go through the same thing as you, and also people that have similar traits and characteristics. Like, you know, for example, I've always been uh, scared to speak up, and so you know, at the senior level, I see uh, my manager. He's also very introverted and also doesn't talk as much. But then, um, seeing that it's a system that's based on meritocracy means that you know the expectation, the pressure there might be removed a little bit, and it's. You know, as long as you're, you're doing good work and you're doing what you're asked to do, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: It really comes down to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Like, if you can see, like Jason said, people who have a similar personality, similar traits in higher positions, then you feel like, oh, I can do that too. And for mm-hmm. people who are marginalized, people of color, if you can see people that look like you up in the decision-making rooms as well, that will give you the confidence to kind of do your best and not feel like you have to be scared or have to be anxious about speaking up.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like it's been tried and tested and you know that everything's going to be okay. So if you want to go down that path, you kind of have permission to. But it's kind of like unspoken permission. And being able to see people who um, are kind of in a position that you want to get to gives you confidence that it's more realistically achievable rather than feeling like it's impossible.
0: Yeah and I feel like it's important for leaders as well currently like leaders and managers to understand that people everyone's different every individual needs their own like support and like not to make an assumption Mm. and being able to support people's individual
1: needs. I think if this episode taught us anything it's the fact that three of us are going through something very similar even though we're all in very different jobs and industries but that gives me confidence that we're struggling together but we're also figuring it out together as well and being able to talk about it openly with you both has been reassuring for myself. I don't know if it's the same across the board. <laughs> yeah, I
0: feel like that was kind of a therapy session. Like I do feel like I'm not in this alone, and I'm sure we're the, not the only three people in the world experiencing this. Like we're all in this. We're all in this together.
2: Yeah, and I think having this discussion has also made me realize that uh, imposter syndrome is just one term, but encompasses a whole range of different types as well, and what everyone's going through. Um, might be different from each other as well each each one of us would have unique experiences and the remedies and tactics in order to treat theirs will be different for each person but yeah it's all a unique experience yeah
1: so that brings us to the end of our episode um thank you so much jason for coming on and chatting with us like tracy said it was very much so a therapy session how did you find the experience
2: um, yeah I think it's really comforting and relieving to know that I'm not the only person in this world that oh, that's experiencing this but yeah thanks for having me on the podcast
0: thank you for joining us Jason
1: thank you for having a conversation with us and taking a seat at our table yes. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our favorite part of the podcast dinner table conversations first question what were your thoughts on Shang-Chi? The movie? Oh my god, so much to unpack. Without spoilers, right? Without spoilers, okay? Yeah, no spoilers. Let's give our ratings.
0: So, oh, oh have a think about it, but I'm gonna... <laughs> I have one. Okay. My one's probably an 8.5 out of 10. I think it was a really, really good movie. Like, I feel like it made Asian culture look so cool. But if I objectively look at it, it wasn't, like, the best movie I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think for us the Asian representation is really what made it. I would personally give it an 8 out of 10 mm. um, because it's not the best Marvel movie I've ever watched, but the Asian representation really made it. And it was also really cool because I saw some people that we actually know from oh, yeah. South West <laughs> Sydney in it. And it was filmed in Western Sydney. Represent. So I think, yeah, knowing all those points, it's like bonus points.
2: Yeah, I'd also give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah. Um, Bonus points for the the Asian representation too. And also I think uh, it also showed a lot of the Asian culture and um, the traditions and yeah, without going too much into the movie.
1: Yeah, the fight scenes were also really cool and the soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack was really cool. I think listening to the soundtrack before the movie was really awesome because when you heard the music, you were like, oh, I know what that song this is. for me. Doesn't that spoil like,
0: the no, mood? No, it doesn't. The mood, like you're like, oh, this is a serious moment
1: now. Not really. Yeah. Because I actually think all the soundtracks were very, like, movie-oriented, so without seeing it in context, I didn't really think much of it, and then once I saw it in the movie, it kind of made the soundtrack a bit more appealing. Okay, second question. Are you a morning person or a night owl?
2: Definitely a night owl.
1: What are your hours like?
2: Probably up to 2am.
1: What? What? On a a work day?
2: No, on a weeknight, yeah.
1: Oh, oh wow
0: God. for some reason I thought you were a morning person maybe because you go on runs
2: <laughs> I mean I probably should be for my work but it uh, it also means I start at 10 o'clock as well
1: <laughs> don't you feel like it disrupts your ability to concentrate though at work
2: uh, a little bit yeah uh, until I have that morning coffee my brain's kind of switched off
0: oh guys for who- those who don't know Jason he's a coffee connoisseur
1: <laughs> <laughs> he makes a latte up
0: <laughs> <laughs> and definitely did not have iced latte around Jason <laughs> No ice. Don't put ice cream in your ice your coffee either. No sugar either. <laughs> Jeez.
2: Come to me for your recommendations uh, on cafes and coffee in on mm. Sydney. What's your favorite? Owner.
1: Yes, Emmerickville. Yes, we love Owner. Yeah. Tracy, are you a morning person or a night owl?
0: I think I'm confused. Like I I I feel like I am not a night owl. I can't operate after midnight, but I can't wake up early enough either. So I'm like a 10 a.m. wake up type of person. So is that a morning person?
1: Do you operate better in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, then you're a morning okay, person. Okay, I'm a morning person. I mean, scientifically, I'm not sure, but I would classify you as a morning person. Thank you. I feel like I know myself better now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a morning person. I think in uni, I was actually like, I thought I was a night out. I was always like, oh, my best ideas come when I'm sleeping or when it's like past 12am and I have no one to distract me. But that led to me like virtually like crashing. So... I think in my latest years of 25 and 26, I've become a morning person Mm. and I'm a big advocate for morning routines now. It makes you feel so accomplished, like you're really seizing the day. Yeah. Yeah. Not for Jason though. Yeah, I
2: wish I could relate. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Last question. Do you guys have any phobias? Tracy?
0: So it took me a while to think of this, but Wendy helped me in this department. (laughs) I think I have a phobia of awkward silences. This is probably why I talk so much because I'm anticipating the next silence and how I'm going to feel it. I just don't like awkward situations. Yeah,
1: this is why we talk so much. Like Tracy and I are just like constant <laughs> chatterboxes. We talk over each other because we just don't <laughs> want it to be silent.
0: <laughs> Yo, there's an issue here, but yeah, I, I I think it's more like awkwardness. I don't like awkwardness. Yeah, like any situation where it's awkward, I'm just like avoid, hide, like disappear.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I think we're learning to yes, not for try sure. to fill yeah. every gap.
0: I think so. I think silences are very important and being able to listen is important as well. So I'm, something I'm trying to work on myself is to be comfortable with silence mm. and focus on listening.
1: Jason?
2: Um, I think a pretty common phobia is trypophobia, which is one I have. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, it doesn't really come up in, like, daily occurrences, though. But I reckon, like, I think sometimes when I look at a strawberry close up, <laughs> I, like, get freaked out. So I just quickly eat it. But then when I eat it, I feel the seeds in my mouth. And then all I can think about is eating those holes. So I try not to look at strawberries. Oh, my, okay oh like. my God. I've
0: never thought about that. <laughs> wow. Eating a strawberry before. That's so scary.
1: Now I'm traumatized because I kind of feel like I've got trypophobia, But I've never mm. thought about strawberries in that way. Wait, so for those who don't know, what is this? It's just, like, a fear of, like, a lot of dense holes very close together. <laughs> mm. Oh, my God, you can hear the fear in my voice as I'm like, talking about it. She's but, sweating. Ooh,
2: I can buy some cannot. strawberries next time.
1: No, no strawberries. No strawberries allowed. <laughs> <laughs> my phobia is a fear of deep water. I think this is also probably another common one. It's like the idea of jumping into a body of water where you don't know how deep it goes. You don't even know what lives under there. It could be a gigantic octopus. Um <laughs> And so, like, things like jumping off a boat or jumping off a bridge or a cliff, not that I do it often, mm. um, is, yeah, I have to think about it and kind of, like, mm. gee myself up for it. In
0: case you <laughs> land on a turtle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> not even that. It's just, like, what if, like, I keep sinking and I can, can't yeah, get back true. up to the top? Scary. Um But mine's not an intense fear. Like, I'll have to kind of anticipate it, think about it, and then do it. It's very calculated.
2: I also have that fear as well. And I... It's pretty intense. Like I, like I'd get it if I went to the swimming pool and I went to the deep end. So I, so whenever I swim, I'd go to the deep end and quickly swim back because I can't stand <laughs> at the deep end.
0: <laughs> That's so good. Oh, that kind of reminds me. You know, apparently there's a theory out there that all phobias that humans have is related to the fear of death. Oh, mm. so like you know, fear of heights, like oh you could die from that, or deep water you could drown, yes. like everything. The root cause of it is fear of death. Yeah,
1: hundred yeah. percent. I I always say that like the one way that I don't want to die is drowning
2: because mm.
1: I just think like about the suffocation and the process of I'm not gonna expand on it anymore <laughs> let's finish this on a high thank you Jason for joining us on our episode as always we'll link everything that we've talked about today and some additional references in the show notes Tracy do you want to give a shout out to our platforms
0: yes <laughs> <laughs> sorry i always mess this part up i'm gonna keep going okay so reach us on our instagram a seat at our table dot podcast where you can answer our um, audience q a and also on your spotify platform
1: cool cool thanks
0: jason
2: thanks for having me All
1: Right. catch you guys next time bye, bye. bye.